Welcome to the Pink Tax Podcast, a no-nonsense podcast for millennial women, building wealth and smashing the patriarchy, one dollar at a time, with your hosts, Janine and Tara. How's it going? Good. How are you? Pretty good. Um, so I've been thinking about healthcare lately. Oh, why is that? Well, when I started scripting this episode, there was a recent report in Alberta about cutting public funding for certain surgeries because the dollar value did not make sense, apparently. Interesting. What yeah. surgeries did that um, include? Uh, the ones that stood out to me were hernias, which if Ow. you've had a hernia... Um, yeah, it's maybe not life-threatening, but probably more than a little inconvenient. So when you say, like, cutting funding, does that mean, like, no one can get a hernia surgery without it costing, like, a ton of money? Or just, like, the wait times are going to go up? Or what does that look like? Well, they haven't, like, said what they want to do with it. But they basically said if we stopped funding it, which means people would have to pay out of pocket for that surgery and consultation, then, yeah. Sort of like how, you, like, you have to pay out of pocket for, like vasectomies if you don't get the weird old way of doing it okay yeah i'm not an expert on vasectomies okay maybe we'll go into that later (laughs) (laughs) but yeah so they said like you know it costs albertans so much per hernia surgery so if we just like stopped paying for it as taxpayers then if you get a hernia and your doctor's like hey you have a hernia you need surgery for it then the surgeon is going to charge you Same would go for tubal ligation, so getting your tubes tied. Good. Yeah, which is currently fully covered, so. I have no concept of how much something like that costs because that seems very, like, American to know how much. Right? Like, I I think I remember one of my American friends saying it costs about 10 grand to have a baby in a hospital, Mm -hmm. and I just, like, that just, like, baffles. And that's, like, obviously if nothing goes wrong, right? Like, that just baffles my mind in terms of, like, it costing you five figures to have a baby so not to like have a baby not to be like oh i have to buy baby clothes but like for the privilege of giving birth to something that is already gestating inside your body like you need help getting this out sorry (laughs) 10 grand up front that's Um, insane and so do you know how much tubal ligation costs i have no idea what it would cost under the new system because the the cost for taxpayers right now is not reflective of what the cost would be out of pocket. So if you look at the past few years with um, the American system, where basically everything's out of pocket, the increase for the cost of service is more to do with the increase in insurance coverage rather than what it actually costs the hospital, surgeon, nurses, everything else to provide you care. So the profits from the American system are by and large going to insurance companies. Great. (laughs) Yeah. So the cost of surgeries and stuff like that are going up because they assume it's insurance companies paying for it. So then if you don't have insurance, it costs you more. But why is it costing you more? Because insurance costs more. So I just quickly Googled American tubal ligation procedure cost. Mm -hmm. And it says that it can cost up to about $6,000 
Yeah. To get your tubes tied. Yeah. Which seems, I don't know how much a vasectomy costs, but it seems like more. Here, vasectomies don't cost a heck of a lot, even out of pocket. Because I think we we benefit from the public system in that you can't overcharge for other services because our baseline is to not pay for this out of pocket. We've already paid for it in our tax dollars, right? Like most of our healthcare is already covered. Right. So you can't um, go to an extreme because we have no baseline for it, right? So it's um, the demand for unnecessary surgeries goes down in a public health system if you're paying for it out of pocket. So it's basically like 10 grand to have a kid or six grand to not have a kid. Yeah. <laughs> or whatever the cost of contraception is. But, like, right now, we pay for contraception out of pocket. That's true. And so if a low-income lady, if they take away tubal ligation, your options are having another child, if you already have some, or getting tubal ligation for free, if you can't afford contraception. But if we go to the new system, the option would be having children, because the cost comes later, right? Yeah. And I mean, when you think about that, you know, people always say, oh, it's a choice. But, you know, when it's situations like that where you are facing like thousands of dollars for surgeries or for things like that, it doesn't really end up being a choice. Like no. there, there's no possible way that it can be a choice when you're making $30,000 a year, right? Yeah. Well, exactly. Right. So when like we put on like basic, apply like basic economic principles that we would use for something like, say, food or computers or, you know, clothing, that kind of thing. When you apply that to healthcare, it's not the matter of can I afford a $100 shirt, a $50 shirt, a $5 shirt, or no shirt. Your options then are can I live or not? Can I afford my medication to manage my diabetes or am I very likely to have a shortened life expectancy? Because the dropout on that, when you apply like supply and demand and stuff like that, when people are dropping out because they can't afford it, it's not like, oh, that's a shame. It's like, no, these people will die. Will die. Yeah. And I, I mean, diabetes is a great example of just how detrimental it can be if it gets out of hand. And I'm sure there's a lot of other examples of that. But I mean, what if you are in a situation where childbirth could be kill you and Mm -hmm. that could be a very real thing for a lot of people and so they may obviously that's not the only reason you choose not to have children but you should be able to have that decision and if you want to get that surgery then you should be able to do that yeah or if you can't afford to have another child like I feel as though you know this kind of opens the debate on various forms of contraception or what happens if contraception fails and is it appropriate to allow a woman to decide whether or not she can give birth to a child or not? Okay, y'all, I'm so pissed about that. Like, when we think, it's like, don't have children. I hear this all the time. Don't have children if you can't afford them. But also, if you think that you can't afford them and you're taking steps to mitigate that by maybe having a tubal ligation, we're also going to make you pay for that too. Like, are you kidding me? Yeah, there's no way to kind of get around it. It's basically just like we hate women. I'm just going to say it. No, and and that's exactly it. And I think every time, like, we put this, like, oh, well, you know, tubal ligation should be funded because what if the woman already has too many kids? What if 
her life is at risk if she were to get pregnant what if what if what if and then we always like value base it and I always think what if we just let the lady decide whether or not she needs surgery contraception or an abortion yeah what if she doesn't want kids it doesn't it doesn't matter like as soon as we start putting a value on it as soon as you start saying that your womb is now public property but healthcare is not a common good and public property to me it makes no sense yeah, no, I, I mean, I 100% agree. And I mean, I was at um, the Dr. Jennifer Gunter talk earlier in 2019, and she made some excellent points on, like, if you want to say you're, like, pro-life, then, like, make all surgeries free. Make, you mm-hmm. know, make all medication free. Like, don't talk about being pro-life and then, you know, turn around and say, but we're going to charge you for everything. Mm-hmm. And, you know, she made it very clear that if we wanted to solve the abortion problem – or I don't even know if we should call it a problem, but if we if these people want to solve, you know, these abortions being, fetuses being ripped out of the womb at whatever mm-hmm. age, the simple solution to that is providing an, an abortion or termination of pregnancy pill, like, via mail. Like, you literally just, like, go to your web, go to a website, mm-hmm. fill in your address, and they just, like, send you a pill to take when you, like, figure out, like, like a morning after pill or whatever, and it's free. Yeah. yeah. Like, that's the way to, like, solve that problem. And I'm using air quotes, but no one can see me. (laughs) Yeah, no, it it doesn't make sense. Because then, like, with the pro-life debate, like, when you look at it, publicly funded or easily accessible abortion actually prevents future abortion or publicly accessible or easily affordable contraception. Same deal. Yeah, yeah, yeah. And I think it, like, parallels to the debate for, like, for public versus private health care and what should and should not be funded because when you look at the abortion debate it's all about control and control of women because it doesn't make sense to make abortions illegal because they're still going to happen of course just the consequences of that are more detrimental for women than they are for men right yeah i mean if if men were the one having to carry babies i'm pretty sure they would have figured out how to so it, it has all of these negative externalities that can't be captured in the fact that this is the cost of an abortion, this is when we think uh, life occurs, yada, yada, yada. The negative externalities of all these arguments for ladies is that illegal abortions cause more deaths in women, they um, take more women out of the workforce, they have a correlation with an increase in crime later on, all of those things, and keep up the cycle of poverty for women. So I think the same thing with private versus public health care. In a private health care system, if you can afford to just shell out a couple of bucks, skip the wait time, get a, whatever kind of surgery it is you need, get whatever kind of care you need, skip the queue, anything that you want, you get it because you can afford it, it's at the cost of poor people's lives. Well, exactly. How do you say that one human being is worth more than another just because they have more money? Yeah, but that's exactly what it is. Like yeah. once you take the funding of healthcare outside of the public sphere, once it's not being funded through tax dollars and then distributed, hopefully equitably, so that folks that or as are equitably Im- as it can be as equitably as it can be in an imperfect society where like folks that are truly sick get healthcare first, right? Mm-hmm. Whereas if you have it in private, it's just rich people extending their lives or improving their lives with healthcare at the expense of poor people dying. And it's like, who are you to say that your life is worth more than mm-hmm. someone else's? Like, that's so egotistical and so entitled. Like, mm-hmm. people always say that millennials are entitled. But, I mean, when I see that, when I see 
some of the, you know, the baby boomers or Gen X, like, wanting private health care because they have money. Like, mm-hmm. to me, that's the most entitled thing you can possibly do. Like, that you – your life is more valuable than – Someone else's. So yeah. And at the end of the day, when you look at it, like when you look at the increase in costs of healthcare and, and health insurance for Americans, particularly, it's actually costing most people more in that society than if they just paid taxes instead. Oh, 100%. I follow some personal finance blogger on Instagram that's American, and she was sharing her W 2, like parts of it, but it, the box around how much she had paid in healthcare premiums. It was like 24 grand in a year. Mm-hmm. And so I like went to mine because I was like, what have I paid for, for like extra insurance through my employer for like, mm-hmm. you know, maybe I want the like upped dental plan or whatever. It was like yeah. $800 the whole year. I was like, mm-hmm. Yeah. But even on that side of it, so I'm just going to pop up on my soapbox now that um, it seems like um, certain surgeries are being questioned as if they're necessary or uh, have value for taxpayer dollars. Value, right. Like, when it comes to that and private insurance, what the hell is going to happen if even in Alberta or another province where you have public health care, what the hell is going to happen if you lose your employer coverage and you break your arm? Like, what happens then? Is that fully covered? Are you good? Is physio covered? Do you get that? Are you able to then have the same ability from your arm? Is your only value to having full and complete healthcare, being able to cover the expense of your prescription medication, being able to control whether or not you have children, is that only based on whether or not you're employable or employed? Well, I mean... Isn't that it's, sick? It's that whole pull yourself up by the bootstraps, you don't need anyone's help, mm-hmm. like you should be able to cover the cost of yourself or you're not like a good corporate citizen, but that's complete yeah. horseshit. So let's say your company lays you off, cuts off your benefits, and then you have some... I don't know, ongoing health condition. You get hit by a car. Or you get hit by a car. Something happens that is outside of your control because let's face it, it's health. You could get you could get anything. You could get cancer tomorrow. It doesn't matter if you're employed or not. Yeah. But then uh, all of a sudden your value to society is just gone because you don't no longer collect a paycheck. Cancer doesn't discriminate based on whether or not you're employed. Yeah. So I just think that whole like private health insurance in general is a disturbing concept and it actually increases the cost of healthcare because when the system is billing an insurance company and the insurance company can just raise your premiums without you really knowing yeah you just you can just increase it just go to town right well and look at a great example of this of how costs like this get overinflated is you know look at canada's drug costs versus america america's drug costs are so much higher because each individual clinic or what have you, pharmacy, has to negotiate those drug prices individually, whereas Canada mm-hmm. gets to negotiate those on a whole. So you mm-hmm. better believe that drug company ABC is going to be like, yeah, we're probably going to do business with all of Canada. That's like 37 million people or whatever. And so they have the power of large numbers or the law of large numbers or whatever it is. And so they're able to negotiate better costs mm-hmm. for medication. And I would assume, to an extent, it's the same on the, I guess, like surgery and the other side of healthcare. Whereas, if you have all surgeries being covered, you have all of that equipment already. You don't have to say like, well, this equipment is for the private industry and this equipment is for the public and these mm-hmm. doctors and these nurses are on this side and yeah. let's pay them twice. Let's have more administrative costs. Let's have more equipment because we can't use the really expensive equipment for the public people. We can only use it for the private. Like, it yeah. just becomes this crazy calculation that 
I don't even know how you figure yeah. out what gets put where. And so that reminded me of some counter arguments. So I hear counter arguments that, well, having a profit based healthcare system encourages innovation. No. Well, okay, but <laughs> let, but let's say if it does, what kind of in- innovation is it encouraging? Viagra's was super innovative and pretty widespread. Is Viagra covered? Viagra's no. covered by most things. Okay. We get a lot of stuff when you like dig into insurance plans as well where shit like Viagra is covered and stuff like IUDs are not. Yeah. So the innovation ends up being for the class of people that can afford the innovation. Mm-hmm. So you're going to get stuff that marginally rich improves dudes. rich white dudes' lives at the expense of someone who's living in poverty, literally dying. Yeah. Literally dying. So if we just had a system that valued innovation at the same level as we value every single life, we wouldn't have this problem. Yeah, maybe we wouldn't have Viagra. What Holy a shame. Shit. <laughs> yeah. Well, and so like to maybe a less, like that's a super great kind of parallel to draw, but even like when I look at studies, I've had a couple of friends that have had kids recently and trying to find information on like certain drugs during pregnancy mm-hmm. for like mental health or what have you, or like antibiotics, like not drugs in terms of like, should you do cocaine when you're pregnant? I mean, probably not, but I'm no medical professional, so I don't take that advice. Talk to your medical professional. <laughs> but regardless, like finding studies and stuff that have yeah. been done has been very challenging And Mm -hmm. I would probably pin that on the fact that there's not a ton of research done on things that are for women. And, I mean, my sister Mm -hmm. is in medical school, and she was saying that, you know, they are having to redo studies and stuff because they've only ever focused on, like, symptoms for heart attacks for men. Mm -hmm. So, like, women present symptoms differently. Yeah. And so there's never been research dollars poured into that, that, like, gendered. And I'm sure that it becomes even worse when you take a look at different races, different sexual orientations, like poverty, I'm sure it just blows up and it's just like we spend no money on that. But like even between men and women, it's huge and we're seeing it in the medical community. Well, that just reminded me of a a doctor I follow on Twitter posted, one of the symptoms for a certain condition is translucent skin. She is a person of color. (laughs) Explain to me how you are going to figure out if you have that symptom for that disease for translucent skin if you are a person of color. Anyway, that's, yeah, I mean, it just shows how ingrained the patriarchy and white supremacy is in in each step of society. But another thing your argument before about different access to different drugs and that kind of thing made me think of was a counter-argument based on choice. So, for instance, there are certain drugs that we can't access in Canada because of the deals and bargains that we've made that we have, you know, the same drug, but we only have it from one supplier or ABC or, or, or what have you, right? So we do have limited choice. But for the limited choice, what that means is you get access to a drug that works for your condition. It might not be your preferred drug of choice, but you get a drug that works for your ongoing condition. It keeps you alive. And also, we don't end up with a system that allows you choice at the expense of, again, someone else's life. 
Yeah. Because if you have, if, if we're looking just between like the American system and our system um, or a UK system and that kind of thing, if someone's like, you can choose between pharmaceutical company A or pharmaceutical company B and someone will die, or you can only have pharmaceutical companies A's version of this exact same drug and someone will live, I would prefer someone lived. It's interesting to frame it that way too. Like when you start to look at, obviously there's a lot of like financial arguments that get made, but at the end of the day, like how do you, I don't know how you put a dollar value on someone's life. Like Mm -hmm. to me, it's, that's like immoral or inhumane. And when these arguments are happening and when um, public spending is being doled out, people's lives are ascribed a dollar value. And unfortunately, you can see based on access to public services, even even in Canada, your system is not perfect. But I think moving to a private system only makes it worse. 100%. Um, because right now, even when we're trying to redistribute the services and stuff that are paid for out of our tax dollars, you notice that certain groups of people, less public funding is spent on them. So we have people who live in Canada who don't have access to clean water. Why? Because... In the grand scheme of things, when you're looking at distribution of services, they've been valued as less. Or they're insignificant number of people in the eyes of whomever. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. But that's meaning they are Canadians without access to clean water. 100%. Yeah, no, I'm which not is disputing that. Which disturbing. is disturbing. Especially because we're surrounded by three bodies of water. Yeah. Yeah. It's, it's, it's super disturbing when you kind of think it down on that level. Moving right along. There are some new proposed changes when this podcast airs. I don't know if the new fee-for-service model is going to go through. But right now, at recording, the current proposal, and hopefully we can link to it somewhere, though it's really super hard to find, um, is that right now, when you go to the doctor, so you see your regular MD. Yeah, exactly. Your your general practitioner. You come in. Your doctor's professional corporation is paid out by the Alberta government $38 for the first 15 minutes of your appointment or first 15 minutes of work. So not 15 minutes sitting in front of a doctor, but 15 minutes of work on your file. Every So that could be like, so let's just pause for a second. That could be, you know, them reviewing your chart or whatever before they actually come into the room. Correct. Or like doing follow-up work afterwards, doing the requisition, following up on your results, doing all that kind of like doctory stuff that I don't understand, but they do. I assume allows hopefully me to, does. you know, detect <laughs> diseases. Yeah, hopefully someone knows what's going on. Then if they spend an additional 10 minutes after that initial first 15 increment, they um, are able to charge out to the government $18 thereafter. More. Okay. Yeah. So if you have a complex problem and the doctor at this point spends 25 minutes on your case, they're going to get $38, then an additional 18 And that's for the professional corporation. That's not profit in the doctor's pocket. That's like funding everything else that comes with running a professional corporation, which fee-for-service is a different conversation, but this is the model that we have now. The proposed changes would be to, for the first 25 minutes that a doctor spends talking to you, reviewing your file and doing whatever the hell else it is to decide whether or not you, I don't know, have cancer, they are only going to be able to charge the government $38 for every 25 minutes or less per patient. So right now, they get 38 plus 18. Which is how much? (laughs) I'm going to have to do some math here. I can't $56, I'm pretty sure. 
All right, let's just double the, check the, that. the accountant here. What did you say? 38 plus? 38 plus 18. And that's for 25 minutes? For 25 minutes. $38. What did we say 56. Okay. We're good at math. Excellent. So $56 total, 38 for the first 15, $18 for the next 10. In the new proposal, which are, it's just $38. So they go from 56 per person for 25 minutes to 38 dollars per person. Now, I saw a real problem with this when I saw the proposal. I'd like to know, now hearing about it, what do you see that this particular change could incentivize in our current healthcare system? Well, so again, I've talked to my sister at length, and I won't say who she is in case uh, someone famous is listening to this podcast, but um, (laughs) we've talked at length about the issues arising in the current system as it is around doctors and not all doctors, obviously, like this is some maybe like bad actors, you know, charging for 15 or 25 minutes or whatever it is and only spending 10 minutes mm-hmm. and then trying to just go crazy and earn as much as they possibly could. Yep. Now, we're seeing that their revenue is being cut here by $18 for every whatever 25 minutes and they're not being incentivized to spend that last 10 minutes with you, which to be honest, like I'm going to go off on a bit of a tangent, but whenever I go see my GP, like... I go in and I bring like a list of issues and I know that's not technically what you're supposed to do. It's supposed to be like one issue per visit. But why is it one issue per visit? Well, I mean, that's so dumb and it shouldn't be like that. It's one issue per visit because we are incentivizing doctors to, you come in for your broken foot, I pay out $38. You come back tomorrow for Mm, the, mm -hmm. the sprained ankle that comes along with your broken foot, I get another $38. That's what we're incentivizing. We're incentivizing multiple visits. Visits. Yeah, and that just creates a whole host of headaches for everyone involved, Mm -hmm. maybe other than, I guess, the person billing and trying to make revenue. So, you know, in that situation as it stands now, if I had two issues, maybe that would take 25 minutes and they would get compensated for that second bid. So, Mm -hmm. yeah, I could see them being like, nope, sorry, we're really going to crack down on the one thing per visit. You need a birth control prescription that takes three minutes. Well, I'm going to charge $38 for that and it's going to take three minutes and I'm going to move Mm -hmm. on to my next person so I can charge another $38 so I can try and get back to the income level I was at before. Yeah. So it increases day-to-day churn because it's better to see five people in that 25-minute period than it is to see one, right? Which is what we're struggling with right now in the current model. The second piece is that folks, like regular patients, are going to have to take more time off of work assuming they're working, um, to come in and meet all their problems because it's just going to increase that one issue per visit. I see, like, if we follow this logic through, people who have complex health issues, so let's say they have a long-term disability and a mental health problem, how likely is it that they're going to have any value for A, their tax dollars, or B, any comprehensive health plan for their lifelong issues. Yeah. Because they're going to have to take five appointments maybe to get through one mental health concern. Yeah, and I mean, that's part of the the whole bedside manner and having a good doctor and having a good advocate is that they do sit and listen to you and they Mm -hmm. ask pointed questions. So you come in for not feeling great and your doctor is able to ask you enough questions that maybe leads down the road to you have a mental health yeah. Um, maybe you're struggling with depression and so they're going to prescribe you whatever. Yeah. Like that to me is like what a good doctor does. And yeah. when you're trying to 
turn people through, you don't get that ability to sit and understand. And I think we need to remember, doctors are people. Assuming that they're, like, I assume they got into this career because they like people, they want to help people, but saying if you are good at your job and you want to help people, that's you. That's altruism, and we're not going to pay you for it because that's basically what this says. Yeah. This says we're not going to pay you for your time. It's not valuable. And I don't know if I were a doctor, I I probably have my bad days, and I would probably want to turn through some patients because I also have a mortgage. I have kids. I have things that I need to get done in my life, and I think I provide good value and good service. So I just did some quick math there, like, you know, $30 for 25 minutes. That's kind of a weird concept for people to put in their mind. And I know that this will probably sound like a bit privileged, but I just ran the the math. And for working 52 weeks of the year, Mm -hmm. um, I rounded up to half an hour because I feel like five minutes maybe would be lost to admin, Mm -hmm. I don't know, lunch. Also, probably not every doctor works 40 hours a week mm-hmm. or 40 hours a week of billable time. Billable time. Yeah. Basically is what it is. So it's $158,000 a year. In their professional corporation. Exactly. Which sounds like a lot of money. But that's before tax. That's before any of the costs associated with their practice. That's before paying their receptionist. That's before hiring a nurse. That's before. That's before everything. Yeah. Yeah, that's a revenue in their professional corporation. Yeah, and so obviously there's a difference between revenue and profit. And in most, I guess, small businesses, you're paying your salary out of what's left over, mm-hmm. right? When you've covered all your expenses. We all know that, yeah, I might make $70,000 a year, but $70,000 a year is not what's deposited in my bank account. So keep in mind, these corporations are still taxed and mm-hmm. They will also still be taxed personally when they pull money out of those corporations. And then we all have expenses for our lives. Like, yeah, okay, so maybe we make, let's say, $50,000 net. Mm-hmm. But we still have our the cost of our mortgage. So technically, our when you really look at what you have take home for fun spending, you know, mm-hmm. all of those things need to be considered. And it's the same for, for these people. But they mm-hmm. also have more costs of, like, staff and mm-hmm. paper for printing and ink for... Your prescriptions, your requisitions, like all that good stuff. But at the end of the day, I don't want to trust that I have to rely on my doctor's altruism to ensure that I'm getting good health care service, right? I want to be involved in a public health care system that pays doctors and nurses fairly, as well as everyone else that's going to be involved in sending off my requisition, processing my lab results, all those kind of things, because I would like to live. And live well. Yeah, and you um, don't want someone to be, like, underpaid and hating their job and being right? like, I'm just going to skip over this one. Like, yeah. that's not okay. Especially your doctor. Like, they well, should be exactly paid. It. They should be paid fairly. I shouldn't be banking on them just being a good person God to knows, do their job. God pay them knows properly. they've done enough schooling, and God knows they have enough in student loans that they have to pay back. Like, even here in Alberta. Yeah. Yeah, exactly. So, yeah, I think when I kind of carry through this logic... I think, okay, so now you're trying to underpay doctors. Really? Doctors? Really? Well, yeah, what? Trying to underpay doctors, trying to roll back nurses' wages, make them work more hours for less, trying to take certain surgeries that don't maybe seem like they provide a life-saving measure, but sure as hell prevent you from, like, going to work if you have children when you don't want children or, or, like, have a pregnancy when you don't want to have a pregnancy, or you have a hernia and you can't work, right? 
Yeah. So I just feel like we're getting set up to be really pissed off at a public health care system so that a private health care system is going to sound like the solution to all our problems, to be able to pay doctors and nurses, and it's going to be great. But it's not going to be great because at the end of the day, poor people can't afford it. It's going to cost the middle class more. And the only people it benefits is the top 1%, which like, They're only can 1%. we not? <laughs> and I mean, when you actually take a step back at this and and look at some of these these things we've talked about in this episode. I mean, I'd put money on, and I have no statistics to base this on, but I would be willing to put a large sum of money down that women are more likely to go to a doctor. Because... I have seen that in statistics, yes. Perfect. You can corroborate that somehow. But, you know, when you think about the things that affect women, like, by the time you're 16, you're probably thinking about some sort of contraceptive right? Like it's not just go to the store and buy the condoms off the shelf like it Mm -hmm. is for guys. I mean, I guess women can do that too. But, you know, whether you're looking at birth control that to help acne or your periods Mm -hmm. suck and they're so heavy like that, it starts so young for women. And I think that women are more likely than just because they have had to go, like you have to go once a year to get that prescription refilled. Mm -hmm. So I just think it becomes more common that women are going to medical practitioners. And then obviously if you get pregnant, like you don't really have a choice on that one. You kind of have to go more than men Mm -hmm. because you're the one carrying the baby. Yeah. And then obviously all the postpartum follow up. And so when we look at it from that perspective, it's just like we're making choices that are detrimental to the people who use the services most. Yeah. Well, and and you can look at that um, in terms of women who are heavy users of healthcare system, but also people who have mental health issues, heavy users of the healthcare system. And I would say that probably, and again, no statistics to back this up, so we're just making outlandish claims in this episode, but women are more likely to seek medical attention for their mental health issues. Mm, yeah, I think I've seen that statistic as well. Perfect. But, I mean, that's not great either. No, I would no. like, you know, maybe if we had a system that incentivized, you know, a doctor to be able to take enough time with a male patient 100%. to figure out whether or not this person is depressed and he doesn't have to choose between, you know, let's face it, probably being incentivized to be the breadwinner in a heterosexual relationship. So he's the one going to work carrying all the financial burdens that go along with a partnership and stress that go along with it, why do you think he would be incentivized to take a day off of work, sit in a doctor's office, and maybe have to do that two or three times before he gets to the solution for his mental health issue, right? 100%. Um, And I mean, again, when we take a step back and we look at preventative care, it ends up costing the system less. Like mm -hmm. having someone needing to go to... The doctor, and by the doctor, I mean, like, the surgeon to get their feet amputated because they have diabetes that was not treated mm-hmm. is way more expensive yeah. than yeah. if we just provide the needles for the insulin. Yeah. And I think when we carry this through, this particular proposed change for our general practitioner's revenue stream will just cost us more in the long run. Mm-hmm. So it saves us a buck here, but it de-incentivizes de- more than our current system, preventative care. And long-term treatments and all of those kind of things because we're making people take more time off of work and we're also paying our doctors less to take more time with patients. So we're just going to see an increase in emergency room wait times and utilization. Like, I think that's just a logical conclusion. And I think I've come back to, I think it's the title of a personal finance book, actually, and it was quite a dark book, but it always comes back to me like that penny wise and pound foolish. Mm-hmm. So 
taking, you know, a penny or two here or cutting corners just to save a little bit here to ultimately be a fool for, in this case, a pound or a dollar Mm -hmm. later, right? And it's weighing those, like, orders of magnitude. Do you save $1,000 here to cost Mm -hmm. yourself $100,000 later? Because that, to me, is just dumb. Because that's exactly – and when I mentioned this to my husband when I found the proposed changes for our healthcare system, I thought, so wait a minute. What we're doing is we're basically putting ourselves in the same sort of mentality when it comes to taxpayers and healthcare as somebody who's living in poverty because we're making it more expensive to get long-term solutions. So for instance, buying food in bulk is more expensive up front than buying a granola bar, but that food in bulk, like let's say 10 granola bars, are going to feed that person in poverty for longer than the one granola bar will exactly but they can only afford one right now and that's exactly what we're doing with healthcare. we're saying we can only afford this right now so later on people will get sick people will die and we will cost ourselves more in emergency wait times and costs yeah it's like Like, the luxury of shopping at costco mm -hmm. as a middle class person as opposed Mm -hmm. to having to buy food one-off from the convenience store every single day. Yeah. And then because you mentioned usage and stuff like that, this is something that I have never looked at a study on. I don't know that it actually exists. But I would venture to say that folks that live in poverty situations or are lower income or are struggling or, um, you know, are, are using H and that kind of thing, they're more likely to use the system because they're probably getting sick more. Because... Let's face it, if I can afford a place to live in that doesn't have mice, that is well insulated, I don't have to take the bus in minus 20, I can afford the kind of clothing that if I did have to take the bus in minus 20, I'm not going to get frostbite, and all those kind of things, so I am already at a better standing of standard of living, I can afford soap, I can afford hand sanitizer, I can afo- afford all the basic preventative daily hygiene things that stop me from getting gastrointestinal viruses that prevent me from getting flus polysporin on a cut exactly you can get like i mean when you think about it and i've heard this story before like some older person gets a cut on their leg they don't feel it because they're diabetic Mm -hmm. and because it was in a grocery store and it was on the you know dragon fruit aisle there's some like staff infection or whatever that yeah. becomes like a flesh eating disease, yeah. right? Like, well, I got I got a staff infection. Yeah, I got not, a staff yeah, infection when I was breastfeeding. I don't know how or why it could or why it happened. Been a cut at the grocery store. Exactly. Well, was it, it was a, I don't know why it, it was a shoe blister that that became infected. Those things can happen to a bunch of folks, but when you're living in an environment where all the other people that you're living with have the flu, have strep throat, have all these things that are going untreated, and then you get a cut, it's much more likely that you're going to get a staph infection or get... When your immune system's already being, you know, worked in overtime. Yeah, exactly, right? Um, Or it's much more likely that you're going to get the common cold more frequently. Those kind of things because you're living in an environment that perpetuates, like, disease, mm-hmm. right? And so they're going to use the healthcare system more. So when we stop funding it, then just, like, more – like, the end result is just more people are going to die. They might die tomorrow or they might die in 20 years because they can't afford their medication to manage their diabetes. But at the end of the day, 
more people die. More people die. And, like, I just don't think it's morally right to look at that and say, I'm going to put a dollar figure on this person. Or even if we look at it with the innovation thing and say, well, you know, we're sacrificing this many people's lives to save this many people's lives in the future. In practice, from what I've seen, is it's, that's not how it works out. You're not saving anyone's lives in the no. future. You're just better funding Viagra and plastic surgery for people who can afford it at the cost of people dying in the streets. Yeah, I mean, it kind of brings me back to, I was just watching, this has nothing to do with healthcare, but I was just watching The Good Place, and there's this mm. one episode where... And I won't spoil it because if you haven't seen it, it's a really good show. But there is this ethics professor that has to ultimately make this choice of this. There's this trolley question where you're on a trolley, Mm. you're the conductor, and um, there's two tracks. In both situations, you're going to kill people. Mm -hmm. So you either kill one person or you kill five. Which Mm -hmm. do you pick? And, you know, walking through all of those scenarios is interesting because you know, obviously most people's first thought are, okay, you, you let the one person die to save five. Mm-hmm. But then it's like, well, what if the one person is your friend? Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. And then if it's like, what if the five people are drug dealers? Mm-hmm. Or what if, you know, and there's yeah. so many iterations of the question. And I think that this is exactly the point to what you've brought up here is how do you weigh that, right? How do you mm-hmm. say one person's life equals five or five equals one? What mm-hmm. if it's a rich person? What if it's Jeff Bezos, right? Like, mm-hmm. what what's the weighting system? And I, mm-hmm. I mean, I think the whole point of that episode was like there is no, there is no answer to that question. It's impossible. There's no, there's no answer to that question. And I, that just reminds me of how they program um, or the struggles that they're having with programming the AI for self-driving vehicles, because the vehicles are going to be put into a situation where they're going to have to value do I save the driver's life or do I save the person's life in front of me, Mm. right? And so I think it's an interesting argument to have because not only should we be having it and thinking about it when we value healthcare and not just look at a dollar figure on somebody's financial statement or what one accounting firm comes back with, but we should, you know, start having this conversation when it comes to AI. We should start having this conversation when it comes to vehicles. Have the conversation. In, like, invoke the moral quandary and then realize what it means. Absolutely. So that's it. That's all I've that, got. That's it? That's, that's all you have? That's how, all. How could you not have my, more? <laughs> that's my, I know, right? So that's my takeaway. The pink tax rebate would be to find the value in publicly funded healthcare. But that's kind of a plug for me. So I guess go through it, figure out what it would mean to you and your pocketbook. Can almost guarantee, unless you're a billionaire, public publicly funded healthcare is going to be beneficial. And for I mean, you. think about how it affects other people in your life. Like, do you have someone that doesn't want to have kids in their life? Do you have someone who is struggling with, you know, paying for diabetes or whatever? I think, you know, trying to put ourselves in other people's shoes is always beneficial, and we're trying to maybe understand how these decisions are being made. We hope you enjoyed this week's episode. As always, please subscribe to our podcast on iTunes and leave a five-star review. Follow us on Facebook, Twitter, and Instagram to share your money story using the hashtag FemFinances.